0: Ko no mai a noa te whānau, no mai ki hotaka tua toru o Kupapa ko Korangi. This is the third podcast of Kupapa ko Korangi, Up or Down, reframing the costs of climate change. Kua mani Dunlop tenei. As areas of Aotearoa recover from flooding and landslides, we're seeing in real time the huge role that the insurance industry has to play in climate disaster recovery. With a price tag of $2.5 billion for damage in Cyclone Gabriel and the flooding in Auckland, insurance premiums are set to rise. When many people already can't afford the basics, housing and groceries, where does this leave our most vulnerable communities? What role does the government have in subsidising disaster insurance and what unintended consequences do government subsidies have? This conversation looks at the role of insurance now and what it might need to play an effective and equitable role in climate adaptation. To steer the conversation, I'm handing you over to Climate Change Knowledge Broker for the Deep South Challenge, Kate Turner.
1: Tēnā So, insurance is often centred in conversations about understanding climate risk really because the insurance sector is so good at understanding and pricing risk. How likely is it that buildings will be damaged by an earthquake or houses in this coastal area will flood in any one year? It's the business, and it's what the sector does as it's bread and butter. Understanding, pricing, and if necessary, walking away from risk. But what does that mean for us in our communities and businesses? Today, we're talking to Ronji Tanyelu, Carolyn Kowski, and Belinda Storey. Before we get started, I'll ask you all to introduce yourselves and where you come from in both a personal and a professional sense. And what do you think about day-to-day that brings you into this conversation? lot Ronji, welcome. I'll pass to you first.
2: Cool. well, ngā mihi māna ki o ka i o ihu karaiti, o te faata alofa whātu yesu ke risu. Hey everyone, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. My name is Ronji Tanyelu. I just greeted you in uh, Māori and in my first language of Samoan. Um, I work as a lawyer and the principal policy advisor for the Salvation Army. Uh, The Salvation Army is a Christian church involved in uh, huge social service provision in New Zealand and around the world, around food banks, addictions work, uh, housing, uh, and a bunch of other stuff, uh, some amazing stuff that happens. Well, personally, uh, I'm a born-again Christian. Uh, I have a biblical uh, worldview or lens through which I see the world in and, and see my work in. Uh, I've been involved in Christian missions uh, all over the world in about 40 different countries, involved in uh, sex trafficking, rescue work, and church planting, and uh, working in some uh, crazy places, but now I'm back home in uh, South Auckland, which is the capital of the universe, and I guess. The offering that I would have to this conversation is: uh, Look, uh, I believe in climate change, but I come from, but I don't believe in climate um, sensationalism or, or, or hype, and I think that there is a lot of that and, and a lot of misunderstanding of stuff, and I guess. My offering to today's kōrero or discussion is from the community perspective, from what's happening in poorer and more vulnerable communities, how are they handling this here in New Zealand and in the Pacific. And so as the Salvation Army were involved in working with families and communities, very vulnerable ones, and how do we not just prepare families for some of these weather events and so on but how do we build community resilience or how do we build resilience in general for people so I don't know if I actually fit in this cordial but I'm going to do my best to see um, how I can uh, bring some offerings to this discussion myo
1: you definitely fit in this cordial and we really welcome you here
3: Belinda I'll pass over to you got I'm Belinda story I'm a Originally uh, from the Waikato in the centre of the North Island, I am an independent researcher who looks at infrastructure, real estate, insurance and banking. Uh, I focus very much on pricing of physical climate risk, particularly where there's a mispricing um, of our longer-term risks, perhaps over the next um, two or three decades. My motivation for working on this is that my perception is that people will have more motivation to take the dramatic actions that are needed to slow down climate change if they can have an understanding of how it's going to impact them directly.
1: Yeah, that's me. Thanks, Belinda. Welcome. And Carolyn, what brings you into this conversation today?
4: Yeah, it's great to be with you all. I am coming from Philadelphia in the United States right now. I'm the Associate Vice President for Economics and Policy at the Environmental Defense Fund. I am trained as an environmental economist, and my research has focused on climate resilience and often specifically on the role of disaster insurance in managing climate risks. I first started working on this after Hurricane Katrina, which was a really devastating hurricane, to hit the United States, which occurred when I was doing my doctoral research, and I pivoted and started thinking about disaster recovery. To give you a sense of some of the projects I work on that bring me into the conversation today, we have research looking at the role disaster insurance plays in recovering from these events. So, for example, we look at survey data from households that have been impacted by a major U.S. landfalling hurricane and find that these disasters are these huge economic shocks for households. And we find that those with insurance do much, much better than those without. But given all those benefits, lots of people don't have disaster insurance and troublingly, often those who need it the most. And I'll just end by mentioning that recently, I've been really excited to think about how we can innovate around concepts of insurance to help us meet our social and environmental goals. So I hope we also get into that today too.
1: Thanks, Carolyn. And and thank you all. You've really set the scene so well, foreshadowing perhaps some of these conversations we'll have today. So there's a lot of discussion in Aotearoa, New Zealand at the moment around insurance, uh, risk management and um, with disaster events that are being intensified by climate change. Who's covered by insurance and who isn't? When will insurance companies stop insuring high risk areas like they have for flood risk on Wellington's south coast or lift premiums like has happened for earthquake risk in some areas? Should the government step in to keep us in place in high-risk areas? And who's left to fend for themselves? But let's start with the fundamental concept of insurance to begin with, and that is of transferring risk or collectivizing risk. Carolyn, can you tell us a bit about how the model of insurance works in general and and where it comes from?
4: Yeah, and it's exactly like you said. Insurance is a tool to transfer risk from one entity to another that's better able to handle that risk. And it helps smooth costs over time. Formal risk sharing through insurance goes back hundreds of years. And the key idea behind it is this concept of risk pooling. So you can just think about a group of people all contributing money every year to a fund. And every year, something bad might happen to someone or a few people. And they get to take the funds to cover that loss. And in another year, it's somebody else who needs the funds, right? And this is essentially what's formalized through insurance, where the contribution is the premium that you pay every year, and the claim is what you get when you suffer a loss. This concept works really well for risks that happen to individuals or firms independently. That is, when one person is suffering a loss, it doesn't mean everybody is too. So something like auto insurance. When you get into a car accident, it doesn't mean all your neighbors got into a car accident. And the number of accidents every year is pretty stable. It's different people each year, but the losses are pretty constant. And that means insurers have a really good idea about what their losses are going to be, and it's easy to price for it. But that's not how disasters work, right? So when people face um, a strong storm, a wild fire, an extreme flood, everybody's suffering losses at the same time and sometimes really severe losses. And that means that the losses for a disaster insurance company aren't stable year to year like if you're thinking about automobile coverage. You have years that are good years and quiet and there's no disaster, and then you can have a huge loss. And in order to cover those really big losses and not go bankrupt as a company – insurers have to do a number of things. They can hold a lot of money in reserve. They buy their own kind of insurance. They make use of other financial tools that help put some of that risk in the financial markets. But all of those things cost money. And so they have to pass this on to their clients, to their customers. And that means that disaster insurance can also be fundamentally really expensive. And sometimes at a price that the private sector can't really offer profitably at a price point that people can really afford. And that's when you get a breakdown in these markets. And when that happens, you see governments step in in a wide variety of ways.
1: Thanks, Carolyn, for that overview. Um, I'm wanting to bring it down a little bit now. So once we think about this wider framework, what does that look like in Aotearoa, New Zealand? So Belinda, how does this work here for natural disasters?
3: So in New Zealand, we have a long history of um, solidarity around uh, one particular type of disaster. So that's around earthquakes. New Zealand is sometimes described as the uh, shaky isles and so we have a public scheme that provides a level of support for a particular hazard which is earthquakes and some related hazards like uh, landslides. What that means in Aotearoa is that we have a very high level of coverage across our population And we have this history of providing an all-hazards or all-perils insurance. What this means is that uh, if you buy insurance for your house, chances are it's going to be for all of the hazards you're likely to experience while you live in that house. Our Coverage of what has been our biggest risk in the past, earthquakes, has been relatively um, affordable. What we're facing with climate change, however, is that we've got a different type of hazard and we don't have that current mechanism to provide that solidarity. There are some challenges about providing that solidarity, which I'm sure we'll get to in a moment. But generally in New Zealand, because we've had EQC, uh, the Earthquake Commission, because we've had... Um, affordable disaster insurance, we've had very high levels of insurance in most locations, which has enabled us to be able to uh, respond to those disasters in positive ways. There are, however, some communities that haven't been able to afford that insurance, even though we do have that strong public subsidy for it. And in New Zealand, we don't fully appreciate how many people are exposed in that way. We have a lightly regulated industry in New Zealand. The regulator for um, insurance is spread across a couple of different entities. And generally speaking, our regulators do not ask a lot of the private insurers. For example, they don't even ask where they are insuring. Uh, So the information requirements made on insurers is very low. What that means is, From a policy perspective, um, while we've had a good scheme in the past, in order to be able to make decisions in the future, in most senses we're flying blind.
1: Kia ora, Belinda. I'm learning as we go as well, and it's really um, interesting to me to hear about the lightly regulated nature of our insurance sector. Now I'm going to ask you, Ranji, we're thinking about collective risk or management of collective risk here, fundamentally, and... We've heard you speak at other events about how the communities you work with look after each other financially, especially and actually in the absence of insurance. Can you tell us a bit about what this collective approach to risk looks like?
2: Yeah, if I can just give you a bit of context, um, the Salvation Army works with about 150,000 New Zealanders each year. Uh, Most -hmm. of them are on a government benefit, uh, facing huge levels of crisis across different areas. Over 50% of those who use our services are Māori or Pacific, so indigenous to New Zealand or uh, migrants from the Pacific areas, like myself, like my own family. And what we've found with uh, some of the work that the private insurance companies have done is that generally there's a low trust of insurance companies, there's no- low knowledge of how policies work, uh, and if, even if they do have a policy, uh, Māori and Pacific are often less likely to actually compare and switch between policies, and actually uh, there's a lower level of making claims uh, for Pacifica and um, and Māori um, families. And one of the things that we've noticed with those that we've worked with directly is that generally there's, there's lower levels of homeowners uh, across Māori and Pacific communities, uh, lower levels of car insurance, but higher levels of funeral insurance and life insurance policies. And I think that comes back to that whole idea of what does the collective look like. I, th- I think a lot, for a lot of Māori and Pacific communities, that a collective approach to insurance and to financial issues in general is really related to cultural protocols and practices and how the life and community, uh, for Pasifika people at least, are structured uh, based on our villages, based in uh, Samoa, Tonga, Niue and so on. But that's not unique to Pasifika, right? All all cultures have a history of uh, that village kind of base. And that collective understanding of insurance and money and sort of the issues of life really comes back to the sharing of resources and traditionally it was about how food was prepared how people were, were going to different places to be able to support and help that work there but today it's all about money right we live in the West it's all about money and how do we collectively pool financial resources to try and I guess uh, deal with some of the issues that we have because uh, Indigenous communities are often underinsured uh, or don't have access or aren't insuring themselves uh, sufficiently and so what I've, I guess my general thought around this collective idea of insurance is that the strategy is pretty haphazard. You sort of rush to wherever the need is and then uh, there's no real um, uh, forethought or afterthought or, or planning. Uh, and so um, I'll give you an example. In Samoa we we have a word called lave, lave, and lave, lave literally means something that gets in the way. And we can call that a wedding, a funeral, a graduation, uh, uh, something to do with the church and so on. And so when it comes to love or some sort of crisis or some sort of celebration that's where that collective approach really starts to uh, come in I guess my final thought there is Pacifica people living in the west for example uh, like myself, it's all about bankrolling um, the insurance risks and the weather events and the things that happen back home in the islands and that happens uh, for Pacific people living in Australia, New Zealand, America uh, and beyond and to be honest I think we can learn from indigenous communities in terms of what that collective approach to life looks like and also to insurance. But I also think there's learnings that we as Pacific communities, for example, can learn from other cultures around planning and strategizing and getting structures and how do we actually um, share information. It's not a one-way cycle of information. So that's what that collective approach is. It, it, it's beautiful when it works well. There's heaps of problems in it, uh, but we believe that, I believe that when you mix some of that collective approach with some of the formal structures, planning, strategy, thinking through stuff, we can actually get some real help for families that aren't accessing insurance in general.
1: Aye, yeah, thanks, Ronji. Now, Pacific nations in many ways are kana to kana to us here in Aotearoa um, in terms of disaster response. And I'm thinking about the cultural and socioeconomic economic resilience, uh, and I know the the complication that's attached to that term resilience as well, yeah, um, of the communities that you work with, Ronji, especially in the example of supporting each other after an extreme event like the Auckland floods or Cyclone Gabriel. Can you tell us a little about that, what happens after an event like that?
2: Yeah, I guess, it, like most communities, it's really about just groups and families and communities finding a way. It, it becomes quite a, a self-sacrificial and loving approach in terms of that collective response to a weather event or a disaster or so on but it's a little bit similar to the COVID response because they rallied around churches or marae or community groups sort of those central locations that these indigenous communities uh, or, or migrant communities are located in that's wonderful but there's also inefficiencies in that and I think that's that whole idea of saying about what do you, how do you bring in some good planning and strategizing and connect that with some of the, the love and aroha and wonderful community work that's happening in the ground look I think in general, the flood and weather events were were bad in general. and I guess the biggest damage that we saw as the Salvation Army is that it actually added pressure to a social system or a structure that was already cracking or breaking. And I think we're really starting to see that now around the housing issues. New Zealand um, has... A housing catastrophe, uh, and right across the housing spectrum, from homelessness through to to decreasing home ownership rates. But when you have these kinds of weather events, uh, then what happens from there is that creates pressure on those that were already facing crisis in housing and other areas. And so that's really what we're starting to see. But I just if I can just give a quick note, in terms of this disaster response in the Pacific Islands, there's a real familiarity with disaster and weather events back home. You know, people know how to prepare. They know how to read um, the winds. They know they, they know the history and the seasons and so on. You know, one of the things that happens in Samoa when we know that the cyclone is coming is you cut down all the banana trees because you know that they're going to be able to grow back quickly after the the, the cyclone and after the, um, the, the weather events. And I think resilience, I think, isn't just born out of money from government. It isn't just born out of people coming together, but it's also born out of history and understanding how do you learn from the history and, and things from the past. But my, my last comment here is that I think I think government can take advantage of some of that community resilience and and sort of just, uh, you know, the the churches and the marae become the the, de facto uh, welfare arm of the government. And, you know, the community sector in New Zealand is underfunded by about 600 million every year. And so I think uh, that's a challenge back to our government to say, well, how do you actually partner effectively with communities that are facing these events? But also how do you plan and prepare and build that resilience, not just based on planning and preparation, but a preparation that's based also on history? And how do you understand those things as well to get families safe?
1: Kia ora, Ranji. And you've really given me a great segue into our next part of the conversation, and I really appreciate talking about some of those things that are being pressured by these events Um, it's not just the events themselves it's the systems and the structures that we have in place now uh, that have a history and that have um, strengths and weaknesses already and so if we think about what that preparation looks like or what that looks like when we step into the the forward thinking space. So Carolyn you've researched and worked a lot on how the US can harness disaster insurance as a mechanism for climate adaptation and how the industry can be more equitable with the roadmap for inclusive insurance for climate-related disasters. What were your biggest takeaways from this study?
4: Yeah, this work was driven by, obviously, the increasing risk from climate extremes and the observation that these are really difficult financial events for households they face damage to their homes and contents, evacuation expenses, cleaning up debris. If the power goes out, they have to buy generators and fuel. They might have higher commuting costs when the transit is down. They have to pay for temporary living when their home's not safe. And so the expenses just really mount. And there's a growing body of research that's finding in the United States that we often see really inequitable recoveries from these types of disaster events. There's findings that lower income households, communities of color, are often impacted disproportionately and have harder recoveries. And there's a lot of drivers of that, but one important one is a lack of access to the necessary funds to cover that huge shock of expenses that they face after a disaster. We see that these are households that just don't have enough liquid savings to cover the huge amounts they all of a sudden have to pay. They can be locked out of access to credit or unable to take on additional debt and are Our federal disaster aid system is actually, contrary to some popular belief, pretty limited for households. Um, Most folks, if they get anything, get a sort of very limited amount that's not nearly sufficient to get them back on their feet. And so because of that, insurance has this really critical role to play in providing financial protection to households. But we see here that disaster insurance is often inaccessible, unaffordable, or not really designed to meet the key needs of certain populations post-disaster. So this report was really looking at how to bring this global conversation around inclusive insurance to the U.S. And we define that for our context as the policies and programs and products across both the public and private sector that make appropriate and affordable insurance available to those who are currently unserved or underserved by the market. And we find perhaps not surprisingly, that there's not one silver bullet solution. And so it's going to take a range of policy interventions, shifts in our regulation, and also the private sector innovating and stepping up to help us address this challenge. So we put together this sort of patchwork of approaches that when taken all together would support much more inclusive recoveries. So these are things like providing means-tested assistance with the cost of disaster insurance so everybody can have access to that financial protection, or regulations to make sure that when people purchase an insurance policy, it has a kind of baseline of financial protection because we were seeing, particularly as climate risks escalate, that often the standard property policy you buy in the U.S. was getting hollowed out. There were sort of hidden caps on coverage, much higher deductibles, and all of this was pushing costs back on households. And sometimes they didn't even realize it until they went to try to rebuild. And that's a really terrible time to think you have the resources and then find out you actually really don't. We also looked at new models, this is getting to the kind of innovation in the private sector space that could cover a wider range of needs and also provide access to populations that are currently aren't accessing the insurance market so this is looking at things like microinsurance which has been used widely around the globe but is new to the US and we've also been looking at what's been called globally meso-insurance models. These are community-based models where you have a local government or a community group or a nonprofit sort of sitting in between the insurance and um, the individuals or the households to help make sure everybody has um, the access they need. So I think there are a number of tools at our disposal and we need to start using them now.
1: Thanks, Carolyn. I really appreciate you coming into what some of those might look like as well. Ronji. Not that you have to have the answers at all, but wondering if you have any thoughts on how the financial or insurance sectors could be improved for some of our more underserved communities?
2: Look, I think um, there's no obviously perfect system. I think what Caroline was explaining as well was some of the things that we've considered as well around what does innovation actually look like in the insurance area, but also the financial area in general. And we have considered what it could look like for an NGO or a church or a collective group to be... Uh, almost a broker or work between that bridge between government and uh, between the communities as, as well. Now, in, in New Zealand, there is some really good innovation happening in this space around um, Vera and I think Good Shepherd were doing a car insurance product for a lower income families. So there's that innovation that's actually moving forward. I think what, what we're really interested in is what are the ways that actually help uh, increase access, and maybe can bring some of those collective models that, say, Pacific communities have or, say, a marae-based kind of mo- um, a model that um, that that tangata whenua have that Maori have, and how do you work with that? Because as Caroline was talking, the question I kept thinking about was, well, why do we keep going to government or the private sector for that kind of help? I know we need to, uh, but you know they're not our sa- our saviours. And so um, I'm always interested in what are the local solutions that communities can develop themselves, uh, whether it be a marae, whether it be a, um, a a church-based group for a lot of Pacific communities, and how can they broker some sort of collective insurance around the weather of Event or disaster or so on, to try and engage with that rather than just constantly being told what to do from government and from uh, and from corporate. So I'm interested in that. Uh, but in, in the end, it really is around building uh, access and affordability. And so if, if we do do that in our financial sector, then we would say, well, we need to build in good affordability assessments uh, within this process for, for whether it's individual insurance or, or collective insurance. We need to maybe increase and improve access and entry points for people to come in and out of that. Uh, maybe develop some other ideas like the NGO kind of community, kind of partner, kind of relationship. In housing, they call it a public-private partnership. So maybe something like that. And work out how do you get some of those cultural protocols. Like Pacifica people are already pooling their money together for wha'alawe Love or for events. So how do you actually... Uh, encourage them to try and direct some of that thinking and that pulling together of resource towards insurance. I think that's that's the real that's a hearts and minds challenge rather than just the process and policy challenge.
1: Mm, absolutely. Belinda, I
3: wondered if you had some thoughts on this. So I think that uh, insurance has a very important role to play, but some of the work that I have done has demonstrated that insurance retreat is inevitable in many locations. Uh, So in 2017, I looked at information around um, how the probability of events were changing at our coasts. And some of the work that had been done by uh, scientists at NIWA indicated that um, events that were currently occurring, perhaps a one in a hundred year, were going to become an annual event. And that was what the conversation was focused on, But when I looked at that, I realised that insurance was likely to be unavailable well before an event became an annual event. So I thought about how best to communicate that and came up with the term of insurance retreat and then refined that to include terms like partial retreat or full retreat So picking up on that point that Caroline made about people not knowing that they've got less cover than they thought they did because of perhaps policy exclusions or particularly high excesses, they don't know that until an event occurs, that's an example of what I would describe as partial retreat. And so what I'm seeing is that in some locations, it is going to be inevitable that insurance prices are going to skyrocket. That's because under climate change, our risk is changing so quickly in these particular locations that if you were to provide um, a public subsidy, for example, it would be so significant, um, it would be very difficult to justify it in the long run. The more important Important concern, though, is that in some cases, if you were to subsidise insurance in those locations, you are locking people into harm's way. You are locking them into locations where the risk is escalating and it's going to become more and more of a risk to life. But if people have insurance, they may feel that um, it's okay to remain in that location. That may give them a false sense of security. We don't have a sophisticated system for moving people out of harm's way in Aotearoa yet. It is something that the government is thinking about, but it is something that I think is going to be inevitable in many locations, particularly because of flooding. If you're in a, a house that floods first and drains last in a flood, chances are you're going to have to be some of the first houses that are going to need to move. We are lucky in in Aotearoa in that there are places to move to, but we haven't developed a system for doing that. At the moment, there is a call for public subsidies for insurance. That is something that has been requested by communities and is being um, advocated and supported by the private sector. What I think that doesn't take into account is the unintended consequences of locking people into difficult locations. Caroline's going to be in a much better position to talk about the example I'm about to give. But to give you an example, there was a major move to subsidise insurance in the US following a hurricane in 1965, Hurricane Betsy. And what happened was there was significant increase in uh, expenditure on defences. They brought in the National Flood Insurance Programme. What that meant is that you provided subsidies in locations and in the case of Hurricane Katrina there were mass casualties in some of the locations that had been directly flooded by Hurricane Betsy 40 years earlier. So I think that providing subsidies on insurance can have these unintended consequences if we're not making the difficult decisions about moving people out of locations that are going to have an increasing risk to life.
2: I just wanted to add a, a thought just off um, what Belinda was saying around um I've been thinking a lot, because I don't even work in the insurance space, but I've been thinking a lot about um, Māori groups and their marae, because so many of them, I think that a crazy number, like 70, 80% of their marae and their cultural homes are located close to the coast, and so they're flood-prone. And so I know that I've I've had a couple of chats with um, some iwi leaders, and that's something that they're now really starting to consider massively, because now you're dealing with cultural taonga or treasures, um, things that are absolutely important to them, often connected to a, a, a grave site or a cemetery. Um, and then now the idea of what, how do they ensure those kinds of spaces, how do they keep them safe? And then if they need to retreat physically, well, that goes to the heart of them as a people, right? And so how do they respond in a culturally appropriate way, but also how do they as formal iwi Businesses or corporations, whatever you might call them, how do they actually get involved in this insurance game as well? You've got some iwi groups that are offering their own form of kiwi saver. So why I've been asking some Māori leaders, well, have you guys considered what it might be like to be that kind of insurance brokerage, considering all the marae that would have to be moved in some way? So I just think that cultural context or that local context is actually really interesting when you're taking all these big concepts that... Um, that Belinda and Caroline are talking about. Well, actually, how does it actually apply to these real-life communities?
3: What I would add to that is that um, there are a number of marae around the country that are, un- are unable or unable to afford insurance. And yet, when there is a disaster, when given the recent events that we've had in terms of Auckland anniversary events and Cyclone Gabriel... Marae are so crucial to our disaster response. Marae open their doors and provide support to communities. And yet in most cases, in many cases, they're unable to get insurance themselves. So they have, um, they're so relied on by our, um, our communities and yet they um, uh, find it so difficult to transfer that risk themselves.
1: And to add to that, there's this added layer for whenua Māori of the loss and taking of land that Jen talked about in our previous podcast. And though there have been Waitangi settlements where small amounts of that land has been returned, of course only land that was in public ownership at the time of settlement, that often is actually marginal land and in places that is vulnerable to risk. So hapua stuck in place when they weren't before. So that option of moving is both a deeply cultural one, but also one that is limited by what's been returned by the Crown. So there's many, many layers to this conversation. I want to delve in a little bit more this idea of uh, do we step in to ensure or support affordability of insurance in high-risk areas, because it's really complex. Um, And so, Belinda, you mentioned earlier Uh, a New Zealand national insurance scheme being thought about. I know that in the US there is one um, to buffer from this expected withdrawal of private insurance companies. It is already happening um, and the financial burden of ad hoc government support packages that happens after disaster events. And so that question of when the private insurance companies retreat and no longer offer cover, that risk then being shouldered again by residents um, and should the government step in with public funds to fill that gap and also possibly keep people in place in high-risk areas, knowing that preemptive moving is, is complicated, that that concept of managed retreat that is being talked about a lot at the moment is problematic and difficult on many levels for everyone involved. So I'm thinking about the complexity of this, and if we keep people in place through something like a subsidised insurance scheme, it could incentivise people to stay, or if house prices drop because of the inability to ensure them even move into these cheaper houses in at-risk areas, with those who are wealthier moving out. And we do have a housing shortage here in New Zealand. Um, It feels like as a potential adaptation mechanism, it's difficult to play out in an equitable way until we have more housing or more
3: available and climate safe land to build on. A managed retreat is a particularly difficult challenge that we are facing and communities all around the world are having to face potentially first from sea level rise but also from extreme events like um, flooding, wildfire um, and in even some cases severe and prolonged drought. That is something that um, we are going to have to make very difficult decisions about and I think relying on the expertise and advice from the private sector is something that is unlikely to serve our citizens well in the long run. So at the moment there is a significant activity being undertaken looking at how we respond to these two very serious events that have occurred in the last few months. And at the moment, we are relying on the expertise and advice from the insurers to determine who should stay and who should move. I think there's an intense naivety in that, in assuming that the private sector, who have a time frame, in the insurance case of 12 months um, policies, that the private sector are going to necessarily be able to provide the best outcomes for our communities. So I think the danger of not thinking about these issues ahead of time means that in the urgency after an event, we try to find quick answers because quite understandably, if you're in a house that's been severely damaged, you want to know what your next step is. So we're relying on um, fix, quick answers to situations that are going to have very long-term consequences.
2: If there is some sort of New Zealand insurance kind of scheme or policy I think the challenge is that none of this stuff is for free so in the midst of all the other things that that the state is offering or, or, or talking about in terms of in the midst of the crisis or around high inflation and uh, cost of living that we're living in that's one of the things that we worry about because then when we apply that thinking to the 150,000 New Zealanders that use our services every year, then those who are already cracking in terms of housing and um, mental health and, and all of the other challenges that they're facing, adding this other financial burden uh, could be, for us, would be just another layer or another weight, another pressure that goes on to people. I guess my comment here is, one, that's, that it's going to cost someone because there's nothing free, um, and two... How does that relate then to ensuring that that doesn't add greater pressure to some of those that are using our services?
4: I'm really enjoying hearing about some of these dynamics in New Zealand because it's illuminating so much some of the same challenges that we're seeing here in the United States as well. And uh, Belinda, I'm going to start using your term of insurance retreat if that's okay because we're starting to see that dynamic here and didn't have that great word for it yet. But um, we're seeing places like at high risk of wildfire in California, southern Louisiana, and Florida, which obviously have extreme hurricane and flood risk, that insurers are raising rates. They're pulling out completely. So we have a bit of an affordability and availability crisis in some of these hot spots, which is exactly the kind of retreat that you're talking about. And I think we're struggling right now with what the right types of responses are to that dynamic. And in the US, what we've been doing so far is when this happens, we're seeing a shift of risk from the private sector into the public sector. And it's not just our federal flood program, but all the states have what we often call markets of last resort for hurricane winds or wildfires so that when you see that partial or full retreat of insurers, you have the state level option and that's to protect the sort of follow on consequences that would otherwise start to impact the housing and the mortgage markets when you can't secure the needed insurance coverage. And I think the questions we're dealing with are how far is that going to go and for how long? So I see a lot of parallels in the conversations. I wanted to maybe delve in a little bit more on the way and extent to which insurance provides incentives or information signals. I am trained as an economist, and I often hear economists, and I resonate to this argument that insurance pricing is really important to incentivize risk. And yet when we look at some of the dynamics, I'm not always sure, and I don't think we have good evidence actually, on how much of a signal it's actually being to households right now. And I see a few challenges. So the first is that what we often see in the United States is that if the price goes up, we often see people just drop their insurance coverage and they aren't thinking oh, that's a signal that my risk is high and I should adopt some mitigation measures or move somewhere else. They just stay where they are but don't pay for the insurance anymore and then are in a lot of financial pain when the disaster happens. We also see that while there's concern about subsidizing insurance prices, and there's actually been a bunch of recent changes in that in some of our public sector programs lately, but... um, The federal government subsidizes development and local governments do in the United States in a number of other ways, too, like continuing to provide utilities and transportation and a whole bunch of other things that enable development to be in places of very high risk. And so I think it's also we need to look beyond insurance to some of these other um, ways that we subsidize the cost of living in risky areas. And then I'm becoming increasingly concerned about how we better communicate to households about the increasing risk and where it's going, because insurance prices are only for this year. They're only annual policies. And we know in places where the risk is rapidly escalating that those insurance prices are going to have to go up. But at least here, nobody's communicating that to people and telling them, you know, this might be your flood insurance premium today, but here's where it's going in three years, 10 years, 30 years down the line. And I think that information on how things are changing is also really important and is probably something the insurance companies are never going to be the ones to provide to households either.
3: Caroline, that's something that I looked at uh Just last year in terms of a fairly simple calculation, because I was sensing that that wasn't coming into the conversation here. And what I did is I took an example where you've got that, um, for example, a house that's changing from a one in a hundred year event to an annual event. And I did a very simple calculation to, to estimate what the insurance subsidy would need to be on that property by the time it reached that annual event. And effectively, what that went from is from a say fifteen hundred dollar premium to a hundred thousand dollar premium per year. And what really concerns me about bringing in a public subsidy for insurance in locations that we know have got a time limit on it, it seems like an easy decision at the time because you might be providing a subsidy that's like two or maybe five thousand dollars. But when that cost of providing that subsidy goes to $50,000 to 100000 and higher, as that risk becomes more and more frequent, we well, reach a point where we just simply can't justify that we're spending that amount of subsidy on one home when there are so many other demands that we have on those public funds. The key, key area that I focus on and the way that I've actually come into insurance retreat work is thinking about putting a time limit on properties. So when you're talking about how we communicate how these risks are changing, a model that I've developed is getting an estimate of what the time limit is on a particular location. Because these hazards are changing, and they're changing so fast, the costs of remaining in place are going to very quickly overwhelm any benefit that we receive from that particular location. And that using um, climate science, we can get an estimate of the point when a location is going to be unsustainable, either because it's reached um, an intolerable risk to life or because it's become uneconomic. The costs are overwhelming any benefit we, we achieve. And so thinking about that time limit and using that to help communicate to homeowners that they've only got 20, 30, maybe 50 years left before the property itself is going to become um, unable to be either habitable or economic to remain in place. So I think that that's a potential response that more reflects the risk than having a knee-jerk response of providing subsidy after a major event, which is currently being called upon by the private insurers,
2: then why build there if if you're going to forecast that 2030, it's going to 30 years, it's going to be unsustainable? Is that more around how our cities and our communities are being built now, in, in getting proper planning in, in place, rather than just the haphazard building that seems to happen now?
3: These are houses that are already in pla- uh, exist and were places that could be healthy and um, economic until we've experienced climate change. So climate change is pushing the hazards in terms of frequency and severity on these locations. So you might have a house that's been fine for 100 years, but because we've now got bigger storms coming more frequently and the sea is rising, that particular house may be experiencing flooding at such frequency um, that it's no longer safe or economic to remain there. We're still building houses in places where they shouldn't be, but maybe. So yes, different... yes, that's um, that's the other the other key thing is uh, we are still doing stupid stuff like building in locations that are obviously hazardous.
2: But yeah, but I guess, and that's where I'm coming from in terms of not working in this insurance or climate space, but but working in real hardship and need. Like we desperately need these houses, and so. If we're, if we're talking about trying to plan these things out better, I'm just interested in what does that look like moving forward.
3: So we, we have multiple examples of cases where our state provider of social housing is building in these hazardous locations, which I think is unforgivable.
2: Yeah, and we, we absolutely see, we, see, we see that as well. I guess if I don't have a climate or, or disaster lens on, that becomes a contest of ideas context of need and I guess that we, how do we balance those trade-offs? That's what that's where I'm coming from.
3: I think we need to have much stronger mechanisms for our state to build social housing and it means that we need to be able to find locations that are safer and we have the planning mechanisms that allow that to happen. We've left planning so much to the market that it means that when we're thinking about social housing, We're having to pick up the crumbs of poor locations which are hazardous and that's where we're putting our social housing. We could choose to have much more intensification and have much stronger role for the state when it comes to building housing but it means that we're going to need to have more intervention in our housing market. So there's a lot of interweaving and overlapping
1: things we need to think about in the conversation around safe housing and collective risk and insurance retreat. And I want to think about this, this thing you said earlier, Belinda, we're getting quick answers to long-term questions and how, you know, how long can we safely stay in places? And we're starting to hear about investors coming in and offering to buy houses that have been impacted by the floods at low rates, renovating them and renting them out. And it feels a bit scary, right? It's how climate slums develop. It's happened in Florida, I understand, with increasing tide on storm
3: events. What are your thoughts on this? I know that that happened after the Christchurch earthquake and what the property owners are relying on, the ones that are purchasing these properties, is a particular provision in our law that says you can buy a property as is, where is. And if you buy it under that mechanism, then it doesn't have to meet any basic standards. So if you sell a property as is, where is, the property owner can um, purchase it even though it doesn't meet building code, even though you can't shut the door anymore, you can't lock the house, um, that it's a fire hazard. And we allowed that to happen after the Christchurch earthquake. Houses that were on the edge of the red zone were able to be purchased and then rented out. That's an indication that we don't have nearly strong enough mechanisms to protect renters. We should have far higher regulations about what is expected in a rental property. I did see that there was some suggestion that there are property developers looking to buy houses that have been devastated by these events, and they'll be making a bit of a bet that they can either rent out the properties because there's less houses, so people are desperate for rental properties in these locations now, or they're taking a bet that maybe they'll get a buyout from the government, um, so abusing the mechanism for trying to move people out of harm's way by trying to make a quick buck. Carolyn, have you seen this play out in the U.S. or other jurisdictions?
4: Yeah, in the U.S. we also have what we call buyout programs, the same type of thing, I assume, where we use public sector dollars to purchase properties that have become so risky that it's really not economic to allow continued occupancy there. The challenge, though, is that, and, and then as a requirement of that, that land has to stay in open space in perpetuity. The challenge with that is that our programs often take a really, really long time to get to people. And so after, say, a bad flood, there might be a household that doesn't want to stay anymore, would like a buyout. That's the economic thing to do and probably the safe thing to do, to not let other people live in such a hazardous location anymore. But lots of people can't sit around and wait especially if their house is really damaged and they need safe housing you know immediately and so we then see this dynamic that you both have been discussing about people looking to leave and selling their property often at a steep discount to developers who are looking to make a profit off it and kind of flip them really quickly and sell them when the disasters retreated from memory or to people who can't afford anywhere else. And then we keep people stuck in these really risky locations. And so I think we still haven't hit upon the right policy tools to enable people to leave from hazardous locations and to turn those areas back over to nature.
1: So we know that it's getting harder for homeowners to afford home and contents insurance. And we also know that those who are renting, which is a third of us here in Aotearoa, and Ronji's talked about his experiences with Pacifica and Māori communities as well in South Auckland, are less likely to have contents insurance. And so what are some of the issues faced by people who rent and have very little control over their ability to stay in place after a natural disaster? Can we talk about what might help possibly for Farno in this situation?
2: Yeah, sure. I guess I agree with the assessment of the issues, and just hearing that whole discussion around people buying um, hedging bets on on disaster-prone houses, it just sounds real vampire eh? I guess the big issue for homeowners or renters who are underinsured who don't have the the, the house and contents insurance, what we've seen is the issue around security of tenure, Um, and the challenge then is, is... Like I said before, the cracks that were already existing in our housing areas were just magnified with these things. And so there's not enough uh, suitable housing that's available nearby that's fit for purpose if the family's got a disabilities need or can't get to a second level of a terraced house, all of those things come into play when these disasters uh, come out and one of the things we've noticed as well is the homeowners needing that house to do their repairs and so that becomes a real challenge around tenancy law and uh, there's recent changes to the Residential Tenancies Act so there's a bit of a battle that goes on there. I think we, what we've tried to do uh, as the Salvation Army in terms of what might help is obviously you need families to be safe straight away right As as, as safe as possible and again like someone said before, marae are opened up, churches are opened up, uh, libraries are opened up, and so we need people safe, uh, but we need them in fit for purpose housing. And I guess that's where all of the stuff that we're talking about around those that have been affected by the weather events. Well, we've got an existing group of people that were already struggling with housing, homeless, rough sleeping, whatever you might call it, and so then it becomes a a battle of priorities because who do we prioritize the most because there's needs across the whole board and we're doing all these different assessments. So to be honest, I don't really have any magic answers here because this is really, really difficult. I guess what we've tried to understand is those in the renting situation, those who need to get out of their homes, we need to get them to safety straight away. We're, in, we're involved in that immediate response. We're not talking about macro policy. We need that safety straight away. But then straight away they're hit with this wall of, well, there was an existing need before this event. And so how do we balance out this assessment? And that? Hap- and that's a battle between us as, as a Christian church, as an NGO, with government, with local government. Uh, and so that's, I don't know if we've actually figured it out well. It just becomes a huge dog's breakfast
1: Yeah, and we've seen after the Auckland floods as well, a lot of calls for freezes on rental prices. And as you said, Ronji, people often need to go in and do renovations or or disaster response on those houses. Um, I know, Carolyn, you've also told me previously that rental prices and spikes in rental prices have been seen in the States as well. Um, and these are things that are not necessarily looking at insurance or they're not seen as being necessarily kind of climate change policy or there's all these things around these events that we need to think about to support people um, in response. And Carolyn, I wondered if you could comment on these extra costs that are happening for families and whānau um, after events, particularly if they're renters.
4: Yeah, renters is one group that we've seen is really not having their needs met by insurance, and just like has been discussed, some of the biggest costs that they face are spikes in in rent, and part of this can be driven by a decrease in supply when a bunch of rental housing stock is damaged. There's you know less there that sends prices up, um, and we see households often struggle with finding any sort of affordable housing, rental units that's near where they'd previously lived, near their job, near their community. And covering those high costs are not something that you can get insurance for right now. And exactly to your point, the bigger challenge here is one of how you make, you know, adequate, safe housing available in the aftermath of a severe tragedy. And that's that's hard right and um there this gets way outside my area of expertise and outside issues certainly of insurance and finance but there's lots of other groups here in architecture and design who are thinking really innovatively about how we can quickly build adequate housing that could house people for A fairly long period of time, because the other thing that we see in the U.S. is that disaster recovery takes a very long time, certainly way longer than it stays in the news. And so when you're putting up temporary housing, it often is not just for a few weeks. It becomes, you know, months and years that people have to be in that housing. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch of other more complicated issues that, just as you said, are so interrelated, and you can't really, I think, solve them independently.
1: So insurance is clearly part of our system for protecting ourselves against risk, but it's no silver bullet. And as we close up here today, I was wanting to think about what is the one takeaway you'd like those listening uh, to take from this conversation, perhaps some thought or action that they have some agency over? Carolyn, what are your thoughts on this?
4: Sure, I guess what I'd say is something we've touched on a little bit, which is that insurance really has to be a complement with investments in risk reduction or climate adaptation or building resilience, whatever phrasing you want to use. But we have to address that underlying risk for people. And not only is that important for maintaining affordable and available insurance, but that's also what's needed to keep people safe and preserve their well-being. And so I think... That's easy to say, and it's harder to do in practice to actually make those changes in land use, in building codes, in where and how we're putting our our built infrastructure. But I think that has to be thought of as being this important twin to the insurance conversation.
3: Belinda. My key takeaway would be to think about um, how our climate is changing and any policy recommendation that is presented to look at it and ask the question, is this going to make people safer in the long run? Is this going to result in more or less risk to life in the next 10, 20, 30 and 50 years? Because our climate is changing and it's going to be putting more and more hazards facing people who are already in hazardous locations. And is the de- policy decision that's being presented, is it going to actually reduce in the long run, or increase risk to life. And Ronji, I'll pass you for your last
2: thoughts. Yeah, cool. Well, I, I'm a big believer in insurance, um, but within reason, I think it's it um, can be quite dangerous to be overinsured. Um, and I think especially for the families that we work with at the Salvation Army, uh, in terms of uh, the real issues around affordability and access. So I think for a lot of the Māori Pacific communities, indigenous communities that we work with, It's low on the priority list, insurance in general, and so it is about hearts and minds uh, to inform, to provide options, uh, to provide uh, multiple entry points and to increase accessibility and and one of the key areas around all of that is to make it more affordable. So that, that would be my take around the hearts and minds of getting people to think more about these issues.
1: Oh, thank you all so much. This conversation has really stimulated my brain, at least, in terms of how we think about risk and how we mobilize insurance as a mechanism and how we look after each other, both on the ground and in our communities and through our policies. So I really value your contributions and conversations today. Kate
0: Turner with Ronji Tanielu, Blinda Story, and Carolyn Kowski. In the next Kōpapa Ko Korangi conversation, we're shooting for the stars and dreaming big, examining different ways we could be thinking about the costs of climate change. Kōpapa Ko Korangi is brought to you by the team at Deep South Challenge. Alex Keeble, Kate Turner, Maximilian Scott Murray and Sally Owen. It was edited and produced by Kirsten Johnston at PopSock Media. Studio recordings and mixing was by Will Saunders and Steve Burridge. Our music was generously gifted to this project by Deep South Challengers Tsikanga, Ruia Aperahama and his brother Rania and comes from their album Fare Māori. Additional music is from Woodcut. To learn more about the Deep South Challenge, te kōmata head to deepsouthchallenge.co.nz. Komani Dunlop Tene. Thank you for listening. Kia tau te mauri. Hei kona.